trust you, God. We depend on you. We depend on your spirit to magnify Christ. We just simply aren't equipped enough to bring you the glory that you deserve. Um, and that's why you put in us yourself, your spirit, to make us like Christ so that we are and so that we become the very thing that you call us to be and saved us to be, which are people who magnify your glory. So pray that your word <clears throat> would do that work today and that Jesus would look beautiful through your word and that our sin would look wretched and that we would find the balance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Psalm 38 is uh, David's plea to the Lord for help. So David's in trouble and he needs the Lord's help. And when you read a lot of the Psalms, you see that often, a lot of need and desire and troubles and problems and cries out to the Lord and complaints to the Lord and, you know, this is happening in my life and that's happening and these people are attacking me and this is going wrong and um, a lot of self-reflection as well. Oh, woe is me, I'm a disaster, God help me. So that's a lot of what we find in the Psalms, although if you were to do like a, a, a study on the Psalms themselves, there are several different genres of Psalms um, and so what we find here with David is uh, a little bit of complaint, uh, but a healthy complaint. And ultimately, this is a request for help from the Lord. And so David makes his plea in Psalm 38 for the Lord to help him. And David's got a lot going on. Okay? He's being attacked by his enemies, and they are trying to destroy him. But before David brings that concern to the Lord, first what he does, and we'll see this as we go through the text, First, what he does is he brings himself before the Lord and opens himself up before God for examination, which leads to a healthier and a more vibrant relationship with the Lord and understanding of David's responsibility as God's child to purge out his sin and walk in righteousness. So David is heartbroken, but what we'll see is how powerful a broken heart becomes when it is laid in the hands of God. Because God can fix anything, and our hearts have already been fixed in Christ. But to get there, David takes an interesting route, which I hope we will all imitate and we'll see as we walk through the text. So, verses 1 through 2, David writes, O Lord... Let's just stop there for a second. <laughs> when you see that word O in the Psalms, you have to recognize that we're just like, like reading words on paper. Uh, you know, this is why like emails and text messages sometimes send the wrong message because you don't get the tone, right? Like I could send my wife a text message say, I love you, and she could read it as I love you. Maybe I'm like, oh, I love you. And she reads it as, I love you. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. I was really feeling, you know, like the, the tone just doesn't come across as you read it. Unless you imply the tone. Like if I said, I love you with exclamation points and hearts next to it and big smiley faces, she'd be like, oh, right? So like tone doesn't come across in text. When you see this word, oh, in the Psalms, it means, this is a, this is a heart cry. The oh in the Psalms is, Oh, oh, oh! It's like, depending on the mood, it's an agonizing oh. If it's a celebra celebratory oh, it's like, oh, Lord, you know, like, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's like a proclamation. Oh, Lord. So, and what we find in verse one is that David is having a hard time. So, this oh is an agony. It's like a, oh, Lord. So, we have to. Maybe add a little tone, which we can understand, we can pick up some tone just from context. And the context is, David's having a rough day, and so the O is this agony, and his expression is cry to the Lord, Oh, Lord, and he goes on, rebuke me, not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. So David begins with a request. Here. This is a request for grace and mercy. He doesn't say, give me grace or give me mercy. He says, do not destroy me. 
which requires God's grace and mercy because what David knows is what you and I know. We all deserve to be destroyed. We all are born into a sin nature that is wretched and wicked and hates God. We are, we are conceived as enemies of God. And only by the grace and mercy of God can we know him and have a relationship with him, right? And so we all deserve what David is asking God not to give him. And the, the request is grace and mercy. Lord, don't crush me. But what David also recognizes is that God is already doing something in him. So why is David saying, rebuke me not in your anger, discipline me not in your wrath? Because the second in verse 2, he says, For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. He's feeling the pressure from God. He's feeling the, what he calls arrows from God, which, is, which are severe enough for David that he has to say to the Lord, uh, Whatever this is that you're doing to me, do not rebuke me in anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, because I can feel the weightiness and the heaviness and the severity of what you are doing when your arrows sink into me and your hand has come down on me that is such a, an overwhelming experience that David has to say, don't kill me, don't crush me, don't destroy me. God is already piercing David's heart. And when we think about our hearts being pierced as New Covenant believers, we think of God piercing our heart as a good thing. Right? Because we think of verses like Hebrews 4.12, which tells us that God's word pierces us to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's arrows in Psalm 38 are synonymous to God's word in Hebrews 4.12, meaning David is being disciplined by the Lord. That's what's going on. God is working on David. David can feel it. David goes, okay, I get it. You're disciplining me. You're working on me. And it feels like you're killing me. Don't crush me in your anger or rebuke me in your anger or, or discipline me in your wrath. The reality is what David is expressing is, is something that God doesn't do to his children. He doesn't rebuke us in anger. He doesn't discipline us in wrath. What does he do? Hebrews 12 when we read Hebrews 12, we discover God's discipline is not done in anger or wrath, but in love. And Hebrews 12, 6 is a quote. So Hebrews 12 is, is a big chunk of Hebrews 12 that is primarily about how God disciplines his children whom he loves. And if you're not being disciplined by the Lord, then you are an illegitimate son and you are not a child of God. If you are a child of God and God loves you, he will discipline you. And then he uses the example of earthly fathers. Doesn't your earthly father do the same thing? And when he disciplines you, don't you hate it at the time? Isn't it painful in the moment, but later produces the fruit, the, uh, the fruit of righteousness? And so that's, that's how God disciplines his children. So when David cries out, don't rebuke me in your anger, discipline me in your wrath, uh, what he's really revealing is God doesn't do that. Because what David is experiencing is not rebuke and anger, discipline and wrath because David would die. Instead, what David is experiencing, experiencing is discipline and love, which is what God does in Hebrews 12. And that's how he, in Hebrews 12, that's what he tells us how he deals with his children. And in there, 12.6, Hebrews 12.6 is a quote from Proverbs 3.12, which says, For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father the son in whom he delights. So just as a father disciplines a, his child whom he loves, so also our heavenly father disciplines his children that he loves. So, what does that tell you? It tells you all of us have a lifetime of growing to do. And you're not going to do it on your own. You need the Lord's help. He's going to do it. It's going to be called discipline, not punishment, because the purpose is to purge out your sin and produce more righteousness. And that's going to require a little bit of chiseling off the edges, the sharp edges, the rough edges of who you are. Chiseling off some sin, forming some more righteousness in you, that's going to be hard work. It's going to be painful because it hurts to be chiseled. It hurts to be disciplined. It's painful in the moment, but later produces the fruitfulness of righteousness. 
And so we should love the Lord's discipline. And David isn't saying he doesn't love what the Lord's doing. He just recognizes the severity of it. And we'll see why David recognizes the severity of it as we go through the psalm and we see what he's really dealing with. So we get to verse 3 and verse 4 and David says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Okay. Just realize, just for a moment, this is you. Like, I'm not asking you to, to imagine this is you. I'm telling you, this is you. We've all been here before. Every one of us has probably been at a point in our life where we feel like there is no health in my bones. And I'm not talking about physical health. I'm talking about spiritual health. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Several times in my life, I've felt the burden of my own sin such an, to such an overwhelming degree, I just go, I can't handle this. This isn't, and, and here's the thing. You can't handle it. That's the point. You're supposed to feel this way sometimes. You're supposed to feel this way. And I think what you're going to see as, as we walk through this, because, because we work through text expositionally, verse by verse, um, we're going to skip over some chunks of verses and just kind of summarize them today because it's a lot of text. But as we go verse by verse, what you'll see and what you'll start to feel as we go throughout these verses is that there seems to be an overwhelming emphasis on sin. Which from a believer's perspective is very, can sound very discouraging. It's like, geez, man, like where's the good side of this? It's just like, oh, think about your sin all the time. So that is just the way the text works out. And what happens is at the end of the text, God reveals something beautiful through that process. And he wraps it all together eventually in the end. And we'll see that come to fruition. But in verses 3 and 4, David is not only aware of his sin, but he feels the pressure that unholiness produces in one's life. And that pressure you put on yourself because of your own sin. You sin, it produces a, a conviction of sin. And the only way you can feel that conviction is if it's the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we take conviction and we turn it into shame and guilt, which is the enemy taking your sin and using your sin against you to make you sin further. So to feel bad about your sin and then step into guilt and shame is sin. Because you shouldn't feel guilt and shame over your sin. You should hate your sin and you should feel convicted to not sin anymore. But it's Satan who manipulates us into shame and guilt. And he wants to do that because if you think about the gospel when you sin, you realize Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have no condemnation for my sin. I am not judged by God for my sin. I am not punished by God for my sin. I am not guilty of my sin. I am freed and cleared and paid for and righteous and good and holy in Christ. These sins don't count against me. I do not feel guilt. I, what I'm feeling is the Holy Spirit saying, let's fix that. You can't have that experience and feel shame and guilt. And so what Satan is doing when we sin and what our sin nature wants to do is when we sin is to feel bad about it and turn that into guilt and shame because if we're in guilt and shame, we can't see the gospel. That's the problem. Because the, the greatest time for the gospel to show up in your life other than when you first believed it, the best time for the gospel to show up in your life is when you sin. That's what it's for. The continuation of the gospel's powerful effect in your life is that it, doesn't, it didn't just save you. It didn't just justify you before. It continues to sanctify you today. And so it's imperative 
That when we feel the burden and weight of our sin, that we don't run to guilt and shame. And here's the reality. We, we probably have developed a habit, you know, and we develop these habits. They're like ruts. And it's very hard to get out of a rut because you just kind of fall right back into it. And we develop these ruts uh, when we sin. And it's like this, you know, a lot of us have different responses to our sins. Some of us ignore them and pretend they're not there. Some of us uh, feel guilty about it and we mope around like, woe is me, I'm such a terrible person. You know, and some of us have, whatever our response is, the only response that we should have is to, well, I'm not going to explain it now. Let, let David explain it. We'll see how David responds to his sin. Immediately how he responds and then eventually how he responds. So, David does what every believer and any believer should do. He feels a burden that's too heavy. It's a burden of his sin, too heavy to bear. And he hands over the burden of his sin to the Lord and asks God to carry the burden for him or to remove the burden by God's mercy and grace. And what David is revealing is what is revealed all throughout Scripture, which is that we are all too far too weak to bear our own sin. We just can't bear it. I mean, you think about the sins that you're aware of, and that can be overwhelming. What about the sins you're not aware of that you do? Because there are other examples in Scripture where the, where the authors are saying, reveal to me my hidden sins. Huh. Well, there's more that I don't even know about? All the things that I do know about is already a burden. I don't want to take on more things that I don't already know about. Do I have, can we just leave those hidden for a little while so I can work on the ones that I'm already aware of? Because it's already a lot. Right? We kind of feel that way sometimes. The reality is you're not built to carry your own sin. If you were... You could have died on the cross for everyone's sins or for your own sins, but you can't because you're not perfect and you're incapable of bearing the weight of your own sin, which is why Galatians chapter 6 says, bear one another's burdens. In, in, and in doing so, we fulfill the law of Christ, which is a law of love. Because when we bear each other's burdens, we're revealing to one another the gospel. When you have a sin burden and it's overwhelming, you come to me and we talk through it and I pray with you and we work on it. We're like, let's conquer this sin, man. Let's hold you accountable. Let's figure out some ways to make uh, this sin disappear in your life and to produce more righteousness. Let's come up with some things that you can do that are going to be healthy and holy for you, like spend more time with your wife and with your kids and read more scripture and spend more time in praying. Let's hold, I'm going to hold you accountable to that. I'm going to ask you about this sin and keep you in check. And then you're going to start producing more righteousness and not doing these sins. And, and, and then by me coming alongside you and helping you, I'm showing you what Jesus, it's a glimpse, just a glimpse of what Christ did for us on the cross, bore our burdens and carried our shame. And we do that for each other. Not because I'm your savior and I can hold, carry your sins for you or you're my savior and you can carry, not, that's not true. We do it because it reveals the truth that we should all be looking to when we sin, which is the gospel. And the power of the gospel to continue to save us or to continue to sanctify us, which scripture describes as continuing to save us. And because we can't bear our own sin and the burden of our own sin and it's too heavy and it's too exhausting, and if you ever try it, maybe you can get by for a little while, maybe a couple months, maybe a couple years even, maybe several years, eventually it's too much. It's just too heavy. It's too weighty. It's too exhausting. And if you're genuinely a believer, the conviction of the Spirit just becomes too strong. And we just can't do it alone. And this is why in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No one else in the universe can say that. Nobody. Nobody can say that. I will give you rest? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This isn't a physical rest, this is a spiritual rest. A, a, a peace that overwhelms us and gives us a comfort of security in our salvation and peace with God in Christ, that when we sin, we look to the cross and we say, 
He's already carried this burden for me. I don't have to carry this around anymore. And we bring it to Christ, like David does. And what Jesus proclaimed about himself is what David sought after as he considered the weight of his own sin. And David, whether he realizes it or not, is begging God for Christ. He doesn't know who Jesus is, not the way we know who Jesus is, but he does trust God's promise to deliver his people through Messiah. So he believes in the promise, he believes in the Messiah, and though David does not know Jesus, he knows that God is a Savior, <clears throat> that God is the Savior. Now we tend to call Christ our Savior, and rarely do we call God our Savior. And that's true, Christ is our Savior, obviously. But just as much as Christ is our Savior, so also is the Father our Savior. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul calls Christ our hope, and he calls God the Father our Savior. So David does not know the Savior in the same way we know Christ our Savior, but David knows God, and he knows that God is the one who saves. So his plea is to the Father to save him, and this is why he ends the psalm with these words, Lord, the Lord is my salvation. So David's sin weighs heavy on his heart, and he continues in verses 5 through 8 to describe the burden he feels as he considers his own ways. He's mourning over his sin. Mourning in what appears to be an agonizing way over the severity and the weight and the burden of his own sin. Now, Keep in mind, this is a man whom God called, despite appearing to be completely disqualified for the role of king, called him to be king and said of David that this is a man after my own heart. So a man who pursues the heart of God, that's God who said it. So there's no lie there, there's no confusion. God declares David pursues God's heart. So it's true. And that same man is crying out to God saying, my sin is too great. My sin is too great. Now, we could stop there and look at that and go, well, I guess we're all kind of just in trouble then. I mean, what good is life then? If the very guy who God himself declares pursues God's own heart, can't even bear the burden of his own sin, and is too much for him, well, what good am I going to be? I mean, I, I'm, in a, I'm not David. God didn't say, oh, Mark, you're one who pursues my own heart. So what am I going to do with my sin? It's overwhelming for me too. If David can't bear it, I certainly can't. So what's the point? Well, the beauty of the Bible is it doesn't stop. It just keeps going. And we get some more information and we get a little more clarity. But David talks about the severity of his sin before he gets to a conclusion or solution about his sin. So in verses 5 through 8, he says this. My wounds stink and fester because why of my foolishness i am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day i go about mourning for my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh i am feeble and crushed i groan because of the, of the be, i groan because of the tumult which means confusion, of my heart. And what we'll see in verse 18 is he says, I am sorry for my sin. David is wrecked by his sin. And what David is showing is the true brokenness that he experiences when he considers his own sin. There is a very true and real and applicable implication of this in our own lives. Like, think about this. Do you loathe your sin? Do you hate your sin? You should. Like, I don't, let my, I don't want my kids saying, oh, I hate this or that, and it's like things they shouldn't really hate, you know? Um, certainly not hate other people. Oh, I hate him. I wouldn't allow them to say stuff like that. But, like, there's very few things that we should hate. Because there are things you might not like, that you still could appreciate. Like you might not, you could say you hate anchovies, but you know, some people like them. So don't hate them. Don't practice hating things. Just say, I don't like them. Not my style, right? 
they don't fit my palate. That's fine. Don't say you hate them. Reserve hate for things that deserve to be hated. And nothing deserves to be hated more than Satan and your own sin and your sin nature. Your flesh. You should hate your flesh. I'm not telling you to hate yourself because yourself is somebody else now. What you should hate is your flesh. Do you even consider your sin? Do you examine your life? Do you process your sin? Do you take time every week to sit down and like kind of work through who you are, where you're at, where you're sinning? God, show me. Reveal to me sin. Show me hidden sin. Show me obvious sin. I'm aware of this and that sin, this and that sin, and that sin. And I need to bring them before you, confess them to you. I know it's paid for. I know it's forgiven. I hate this sin. I don't want to be that man or that woman. I don't want to be that person who lives in those sins. Uh, the way I treated my spouse or spoke to my children or interacted with people this week or my attitude or my heart or my disposition or, or the way I gave maybe my phone or some video game too much attention this week and didn't spend enough time in your word, that's sin, or didn't spend enough time with you, Lord, that's, maybe that's sin. And, and so like, we have to like really take time every week to sit down with God and process and examine ourselves. Where are we at? What sin's going on in my life? What is God working on? God, what do you need to work on? What do you need to make me aware of? And if we're in the word, he shows us. And if we're in prayer, we are communing with him, expressing to him where we're at, like David does in Psalm 38, and scripture gives us replies and answers and clarity and solutions Tells us how to think and how to feel about those sins. Tells us how to respond to that sin. Tells us what to do with particular sins. How to behave. So it gives us logistics, practical, implica- uh, practical, applicable, logistical how-tos in Scripture. Don't get drunk. Or, you know, very explicitly clear commands in Scripture. Like, okay, well, I should just stop that thing then. Or... If they're more subtle or more implied truths, then you take time working through that with the Lord. But the reality is you have to make time for the Lord to sit down and examine yourself. Examine your heart, examine your mind, examine your actions, examine your attitudes, and realize that they are not perfect before the Lord, and so they need discipline. You need, and I need, we need discipline. We need to be chiseled. You're not perfect. You're going to sin. It's going to happen because of your... And, and, you, and that doesn't mean you'll necessarily intentionally sin. You might avoid intentional, purposeful, volitional sin all week. But if you take time to sit down and examine yourself, God's going to go, well, I... I think it's glorious that by the power of my spirit and through my son Jesus, you performed righteousness intentionally all week. But there is still sin in you that I'm going to show you that needs to be worked out. And then he brings it to the surface. You're like, I didn't even know that was there. And the way David responds to it is very different than the way sometimes we respond to it. I'm not saying every time you sit down with the Lord and process this and examine yourself that you should fall on the ground prostrate like David does and weep and cry and be like, oh Lord, the agony is changing. Mean, I mean, it doesn't have to be so dramatic. Okay, but the reality is if we truly examined ourselves, it probably would be kind of dramatic. We have to examine ourselves. Otherwise, we just don't see our sin. And we're commanded to examine ourselves. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Paul says, examine yourselves. And there is no need to examine yourself unless there are things that need correcting, right? So obviously, we need correcting. And we will, because Scripture tells us that God loves us and he will correct his children until the day that we are perfected and the justification that Christ earned for us turns into glorification and comes to fruition. And we are in our resurrection bodies in the perfect state of Christ. Until that day, we need work. And once you sit down and examine yourself, you find those areas of imperfection, you have to think, do I hate them? 
Do I weep over the foolishness of who I am in my sin like David does? Do I beg God to rebuke me and to change me and correct me and to sanctify me like David does? That sounds very sin heavy. That sounds very like, well, that's a lot of time spent in prayer focusing on the negative side of this whole story. But there is something more promising and helpful coming in this psalm, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you now what it is. It's the gospel, which will fix all of what David is concerned about in himself, and it fixes all that we are concerned about in ourselves when we examine our own lives. So part of the examination, which we'll see from David, is not just examine yourselves so that God reveals your sin to you and then weep and be broken over your sin. That's only part of the time that we spend alone with God. The other part is to focus on the solution, which is Christ. Because if you spend time examining yourself, recognizing your sin, asking God to pull that sin out of you and show it to you, and you feel this brokenness and this like hatred for your sin that kind of wrecks you, like the way David describes in Psalm 51 and describes here, to the point where you fall on the ground like David, prostrate and tore up inside over this sin. If, you just, if that's it and you just stop there, you're going to have a terrible experience as a human being and certainly a terrible experience as a believer. The whole point of that is meant to lead you to one thing, to, to look at Scripture and then look at your life, to hold the Bible in one hand and your soul in the other, your flesh in the other, and go, what does the Bible say about God and what does the Bible say about me? And then as I examine my own life, what do I see and what should, like, like when, you, when you squeeze... Like, you know, you know those little Play-Doh machines um, with the, you know, like the, <laughs> uh, the, the, what's the word? Lime, the lime juicers, right? And you put like that type of thing and then you put the Play-Doh and you squeeze it and it shoots these little things out. Like we should put our life in like the lemon squeeze and just squeeze it. And then all this juice, which is our sin, should just ooze out and should be able to examine it, like really put the pressure on, apply the pressure, and and the device that squeezes us is this Bible. And when we do that, it will destroy us. And it's meant to destroy you. But you're not meant to stay destroyed. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we we are knocked down, but not destroyed. Right? So, as we are squeezed by the word and our life is revealed and the reality of our wickedness and sinfulness is kind of forced out and we're forced to confront it, we could sit there and go, oh, I'm disgusting, oh, I'm terrible, oh, what's wrong with me, oh, I should be broken. And it should create this like, oh, look at this sin, it's disgusting. And that is meant to produce something great. And the something great that it's meant to produce is dependence. That should make you go, like David, this is too much for me. I got this handful of lemon juice, which is all the sin in my life. It's at least the ones I'm aware of. And it's too much. It's too heavy, too big of a burden. It's too painful for me to endure. And God goes, exactly. And that's why you need me. So I'm revealing that to you so you would give me that burden. So hand me over, hand over all that sin to me. Come on, give it to me. We give him our sin. He goes, that's what I'm meant to do. In Christ, I bear that sin. I bear the weight. I bear the burden. We're supposed to be broken and destroyed and wrecked by our sin so that our response would be, how could I do this without you, God? And he goes, you can't. That's why you need me. We go, oh, That's why Jesus came. That's why Christ died for my sins. That's why Jesus was perfect because I'm not. Look how imperfect I am. But Christ was and Christ took all this imperfection out of my life, nailed to the cross, buried it in the grave, and in exchange gave me his perfect credit, put it on me, this sin that I'm holding in my hand that I'm examining, and though it destroys me and I'm wrecked by it and it does, make, it does break me down, the only reason I'm at the revelation that Christ is so glorious is because I first realized how 
wretched I am without him. And what that produces is joy and exaltation and the magnification of God's glory in who Jesus Christ is in you. So you look at who you are in, without Christ and you see this and it's a burden, it's too much, it's too heavy, it's too gross, it's too putrid. You don't want to be like that. That's not who you, who you, you know that's not who you are in Christ. And God goes, exactly, now give it to me. I'm the only one who can, who can carry it. That's why Christ said, Come to me. I'm the only one who can carry it. Bring me your burden. And when you do, your burden gets light. You get peace, joy. You get love and grace. And your response will be a life and a heart and a mind full of joy in the gospel. Peace with God in Christ. Peace with others in Christ. And you will begin to reflect the nature and character and persona of who Jesus really is instead of who you are in your sin. Because if we just examine ourselves and see what we are and we just go, ugh, and we try to go on the rest of the week with that in our hands, we're going to die. We're, gonna ha- we're, gonna, we're not going to make it. You weren't meant to carry that. The whole point of being broken by our sin is so that we could exalt in the gospel. So my point is that you'll never get to the maximum joy that the gospel is meant to produce in you if you don't first depend on God. And you can't depend on God if you don't first examine your life. Because when you examine your life, you find out who you really are without him. And when you find out who you are without him, you realize how much you need him. And when you realize how much you need him, you turn to him and he shows you his gospel. And the product of that is not you standing in a miserable state of brokenness, but you staying in a wonderful, joyful, peaceful state of, that's not who I am anymore. Christ makes me new. We should go through that process. It sounds exhausting, doesn't it? That whole process I just explained. Sit down, examine your life, be in the word, be in prayer, squeeze myself, really let the word squeeze out who I am, find out all the nooks and crannies of sin in my life, and then be broken over it, but then realize, oh, I can hand it over to God, and I depend on God, and God shows me the gospel, and when I hand over my sin, he goes, covered and paid for, nailed to the cross, buried, and you are redeemed, that is not who you are anymore, now get up, Christian soldier, and live that life for Christ, because that's who you are, and we get up, we're like, yeah, I, I got sin in my life, but man, Jesus paid for it, and I am new, and I can walk in righteousness, because day by day, I examine myself to see where God is working on me to sanctify me, now that whole process sounds exhausting, and you know what? It is. It is. It's exhausting. It's hard to live that kind of life. Christian life's, I've said this so many times, Christian life's hard. I mean, there's so many ways in which Christian life's actually rather easy. But there are a lot of ways in which it's hard. And it, the way, one of the ways in which it's hard is being honest with yourself about who you are. That's not easy, man. It's so hard that most Christians only do it like once a year, if that. Because we're too afraid to be honest with God about ourselves. And if we're too afraid to be honest with God about ourselves, then I can tell you one thing. You don't know what the gospel is. Because the best part of the gospel is God's like, be honest with me. I mean, we talked about it last week when we went, kind of went back into like Genesis 1, 2, and 3. When we see Adam and Eve sin... And God covers their sin. Right? Like he sacrifices an animal. They covered their, they covered their nakedness with fig leaves. And God's like, that ain't going to cut it, guys. There needs to be a payment for this debacle. For this atrocity that is an offense to my holiness. So he sacrifices an animal and covers their sin. That's the gospel. Well, Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. We don't need Jesus to die again for us. And even more so, you don't need to die for your sins. Because you can't. It'd be an unworthy sacrifice. So why do we kill ourselves over our sin then? You know what I'm saying? Like... We punish ourselves for our sin by remaining in those sins and not handing them over to God. 
by not examining them and then saying, I can't carry this, God, you have to, here's my sin, what are we going to do about it? That has to happen. If it doesn't, you're holding on to it. You know what that means? That's essentially you saying, I will carry the burden of this sin. And Jesus goes, how could you? You can't. You weren't made for it. And I already carried it on the cross. So for you to take it from me off the cross and carry it yourself like you are capable of carrying it yourself is an offense to my gospel. The whole point of the gospel is you can't do it. Stop trying. He did it. Now hand it over. That's it. And when we do that, oh my goodness, you guys, the freeness and the joy, the freedom that comes from, from being in Christ. And I know you already know you're in Christ. and know you already know your sins are paid for. I, I get that you get that. Like theologically, I'm, I'm encouraging you. I'm challenging you to not just get it theologically, but to practice it daily. And the practice of loving the gospel daily begins with you finding a need for the gospel and you find your need for the gospel when you examine yourselves. When you read the word of God and pray and recognize who am I and what does the Bible say about who I am and now what does the Bible say about who God is and how he deals with it. And that's when the gospel shows up so powerfully in our daily lives. And we find this from David at the end of the psalm. He says in verse 15, it's like David goes like, we get all this, these verses that we already looked through where David's like just kind of wrecked over his sin. And then what David does is he starts talking about uh, the, the enemies that are chasing him. So, so just notice, and it's just kind of a practical tip on righteousness for you, okay? David has enemies who are trying to ruin him. And he complains about those enemies in this text. He says, uh, where is it? Verse 12. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. That's what David's facing. That sounds pretty rough, man. In addition to the burden of his own sin that makes him fall down prostrate in front of God and just broken and destroyed over his own sin, in addition to that, he's got enemies trying to kill him and planning treachery against him all the day long. Rough life. And you know what most people would do in this scenario? They would start with the complaint. Hey, God, can you please get this person off my back? That's not what David does. David doesn't start with his complaint. David starts with humility. Before David gets to his real concern, which is these people are trying to ruin my life, Lord, help me. First he says, before I talk to you, God, about what they're doing to me, let's, can, because David's a man after God's own heart, he says, first I need to examine myself. Before I blame other people for my problems, I gotta check myself. So David checks himself and is destroyed by who he is. And then, after a healthy brokenness before the Lord over his own sin, he then looks at everyone else who's attacking him, and now he has a more refined and perfected view of his enemies. So he doesn't just complain about his enemies. First, he confesses his own sin and recognizes that even though his enemies treat him with injustice, he still knows that he is not perfect and the weight of his own sin must be dealt with first before he even considers how his experience is a product of what others are doing to him. That is humility. And it's important to us because it requires dependence on God. God helping us with our enemies also requires dependence. But there is a greater dependence when we bring our own sin before God because we know that we, can make other, we, we cannot make other people behave a certain way. But we do think that we can make ourselves behave in a certain way. And that's not necessarily true, though, because just as much as we need God's help to deal with those around us because we don't control them, 
He is just as much in control of us. And we, need to, and we must show him our utter and total dependence on him by confessing our sins after examining ourselves. Then we can get a proper understanding of what's going on in the life of people around us and how others are affecting us. But it begins with self-examination, which, which produces dependence on God and then totally changes your perspective on how you view everything else going on in your life. And that's what David does. And what is the conclusion of all this? It's all, like I said, very negative. And then, you know, there's preach the gospel, the whole point of this negativity. And I don't think it's negative. I think it's very positive uh, that a negative thing produces such a positive result. That's life, right? You have to go through the negative to get to the positive. Well, you don't get salvation if there's not a negative first. Jesus has to die. The Son of God has to be murdered on a cross for you to be saved. Are you saved? Yes. Positive. How'd you get there? A negative. Jesus dies unjustly. But we would call that a positive, right? Why? Because it saves you. But it's injustice. It's murder. It's unfair. It's a negative. It's it is fair and it is just that you and I would examine ourselves before the Lord and be honest with him about who we are and then see the gospel come to life in our lives. We need the negative, which is an examination of self and recognition of sin and a brokenness over that sin, to get to the positive, which is the power of the gospel every day as a reminder of who we are in Christ. Don't ever examine yourself. Find that sin and stay there. That's never what it's meant to be. It's meant to produce righteousness. And David recognizes this gospel too. He goes on at the end in verse 15. He says, so after all this complaining, after this, I'm a terrible person. I've got a ton of sin. God, you're destroying me. Oh, and my enemies are trying to destroy me. God, help. God, help. Oh, what's going on? My life is terrible. I'm terrible. The people coming after me are terrible. Verse 15, he goes, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. Verse 18, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. Verses 21 through 22, do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So if it is, feel like this is too overly focused on sin, and if you're thinking, hey, instead of focusing on sin, we should be focusing on Christ, well, you're right, we should. And that is the point of the psalm and David's complaint. The only way we could recognize Christ and focus on him is if we discover a need for him, and there is no place where we need him most than we recognize who we are without him. And we see our sin ever-present before us when we recognize who we are without him. And when we do that, as David does, it leads to these final verses where David waits for the Lord, confesses a sin to the Lord, repents of his sin, and depends on God for salvation. That's the process. From brokenness to repentance to dependence. And the gospel bursts onto the scene in those moments, and you will find incredible joy and freedom in Christ to live in his righteousness being obedient isn't just about hey make sure you make the right choices at the right moments obedience is often about make sure you are examining sin that is habitual or stuck in your life and even if it's not habitual maybe it's not but examining yourself recognizing your sin nature its work and activity in your life and repenting of that sin depending on God to deal with that sin and letting the gospel of Christ and his righteousness flow out of you from that. That's how you walk in obedience. We need to go through what I call a healthy process of confession, brokenness, repentance, and then we become dependent on Christ. From there, if we do that every day, we should get up from that time with the Lord and find ourselves more like Christ than ever before, every day. 
more like Christ in mind and in action and attitude and in heart, recognizing that those sins that I just handed over to the Lord, those don't define me. That's not who I am. They are dead and they are gone. They have been destroyed and buried. I am a new creation. I am in Christ. I am the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not because I am, but because Christ is and because he has cleansed those sins I just confessed. We do that every day. We'll be walking in the power of the gospel constantly. We'll be filled with the Holy Spirit constantly. We'll be living in righteousness constantly. We'll be solving most of the problems in our life. I'm not telling you life will get easier. Reality is it'll probably get harder but it'll be way more joyful and way more like Jesus and way more like eternity. And if we go through that process of confession, brokenness, repentance, then dependence, what happens is Christ's glory is magnified, his glory is revealed, and his perfect righteousness is like activated in your daily practical living. And then we will live with proper peace more joy, and better obedience. And therefore, glorify God in our dependence on him and on his son and on his gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We cannot do the Christian life without you. We need to examine ourselves and depend on you and uh, help us not to examine our sin so much that we are just sin-focused, that is not what you want from us. You want us to be Christ-focused. But we want to take, get in the vehicle that is our sin nature and just ride it to the cross so we recognize the power of the cross. Every day, just where is our sin? Where, where do we need to be chiseled? Where do you need to squeeze, God? Do that in us daily and from there, just pour the gospel into our hearts show us the righteousness of Christ and remove the thoughts of those sins and help us to walk in the newness of life that we have in Jesus. We want to be a church like that, God. We thank you for your word and for your gospel. We know you love us and we love you too. In Jesus' name, amen.